Action Park Media. Hi, welcome to Victory the Podcast. I'm Doug Ellen. I'm here. <laughs> you, My name's Kevin. He doesn't like this. By the way, I got a lot of messages. People want you to say your name. They like okay. it. Give them comfort. Right, let's start. Okay, I'm good. Kevin Connolly, listening to Victory the Podcast. You know, I'm excited, Kevin. You're really making some magical shit happen here. You know, we got Rams last week, Aaron Donald, Matthew Stafford, Johnny Hecker. Yeah, we're going to be, for the for the Victory audience out there, we're going to be, we, uh, we're fortunate enough that the Rams reached out to us and they wanted to do... Come do a, a offer. You hear that? Hey, that was an offer. <laughs> that was an offer. Yes, that was definitely an offer. They wanted to uh, join forces and do victory. Uh, the podcast Rams edition, where we're going to release separate from our, our regular, regularly scheduled content. We're going to release eight bonus episodes with interviews from Rams players. And we had a good time. It was, it. it was great. Although I, we, sh- Andrew Whitworth should have been one of them also. Well, I we, guess get, we have our own we, stuff. We did our own Andrew Whitworth. Yeah, he so. was a main, a main player, but um, we'll get him back. And in. today, you know, you got this new podcast right. with Ryan Leaf called Bust. Bust is the name of it. And Ryan Leaf, for anyone who doesn't know, number two draft pick in the ninety-eight. There he is. There he is. Ryan He's Leaf here. in He's the window. Here. Look how big! Look how big this guy is. He's it's standing. A, it's this a big is, quarterback. You better behave yourself. <laughs> so Ryan was drafted number two behind uh, Peyton Manning, right? And obviously did not live up to expectations. I guess you would say so. He, you know, he got stuck with the the bus tag, right? Um. So when he pitched it to me, in the podcast, he said. I want to call it bust. And I was like, wow, that's, that's really interesting. And, but, but this isn't really even a sports podcast. We're going to bring Ryan. Well, on. I heard the first one and it's, it's great. And it is, it's story of life, which I want to ask you before we bring Ryan on. Do you think for real, we've had a nice career. Do you think we've lived up to our expectations? And I'm not saying we were, we were highly touted, but do you think given our, where we were 10 years ago, do you think we're living up to expectations? Well, I mean, I think, I guess it's whose expectations, right? Yeah. I mean, I think when you go that high in the draft, and particularly when you're married, for lack of a better term, to Peyton Manning, I think it's easier to, right. to see that he didn't live up to expectations. But so, the truth of the matter is, the guy did go second in the draft. Yeah. He signed, you know, $31 million in contracts. So yeah. how big of a bust can he be? Like, I Yeah, said, well, that's a bust. That's what the media likes to do. They like to tear people down. And, and everybody, you and I are, are, are mediocre uh, amateur athletes. And we right, know, if he's a bust, then what does that make you like, to, to play <laughs> professional sports on any level is, is right. obviously something we all dream about. And right. I'm, I'm excited to hear... Ryan, and you, but you'll also, you'll, you'll hear this is, you know, while obviously there's a sports background to this, this is a, this is a mental health podcast yeah. and it's something that we, you know, we joke around, but we take very seriously here. And when's it airing? And it's airing now. So oh, it's when, out. when you're listening to this, change over to here and listen to the uh, first episode. Do I have any ownership in that? Podcast? You do not have any ownership, Damn. but, but Damn. you know, season two, <laughs> if we there. move into uh writer's bust season two, <laughs> Doug Ellen. <laughs> I'm excited. We'll be right back. We'll be right with back. Ryan Leaf. We've got Action Park media stars that Kevin Connolly is grooming for big podcasts. <laughs> Ryan Leaf, how you doing? I'm doing good, Doug. It's good to meet you. You too. I was a huge Entourage fan. I told Kevin this when we first met. Uh, I kind of did what you portrayed on, on on TV. I had a few of my buddies from high school come down and move in with me. One ended up being our cook. <laughs> one ended up being my manager. And then we had another guy that kind of uh, ended up kind of hanging on and being part of that that group too. So we had a an entourage of sorts before uh, there was entourage. Before there was entourage, and was that was that a helpful or a hindrance to you? It ended up being I I think a hindrance because I was their golden goose, and they were never going to not enable my behavior. And when right. things got bad, I I just hung hung on to them, saying I was like the victim in all of these things and stuff like that. So ultimately, I don't I don't think it was a benefit. I wouldn't. I wouldn't trade what we got to experience and got to do some of the things we got to uh, three kids from little podunk Montana, right. Doing the things we got to do, I think is something I always look back on, but ultimately it wasn't, it wasn't the answer for me that I needed probably then. Well, I just, I want to take you back a little bit. I mean, you're, you're the number two pick in the NFL draft behind Peyton Manning. The expectations are off the charts. How were you feeling when you came in, to the NFL. Did you feel like you could handle this or? Yeah, I felt like this was exactly where I was supposed to be, right? Everybody was telling me how great I was for so long. Uh, and then those who didn't, who said that I was going to fa- fail, I had accomplished something that no one had ever done. So I was like, you know, 
fuck you guys. I'll tell you how this is going to be. And this was exactly how it was going to be. And so I was ready for it. I didn't expect uh, anything to change. I was super talented. Um, the only difference would be, you know, how I could rub it in the face of the Indianapolis fans and in, in front office for not picking me first. Right. Ryan's Ryan takes names. Ryan's I like that. By the way, Doug takes names. Yeah, I do. <laughs> you put put a little list. But nobody it. drafts me. It's <laughs> picking me for shit. I don't know. So Ryan, would, I guess that draft year was sp- special because of Peyton Manning. Do you think that that complicated uh, things for you and led to this so-called title of draft bust? I mean. Yeah, because I was drafted alongside arguably the greatest quarterback to ever play, right? right? And, and there like, were some people out there that thought it was a coin toss that it, that it could have been you or even should have been you, right? Yeah, I, I mean, I was more talented, uh, you know, but it, everybody's talented who gets to that level. Right. It's what you're able to do from Sunday to Sunday in between your years, you know, really compartmentalizing everything that comes at you and the media aspect of things and dealing with, uh, the scrutiny and the spotlight, I didn't ever anticipate, right? Growing up in little Montana, we had no publicity. We had no media. And then at Washington State, it was the same thing. All of a sudden, I'm in San Diego, and they have a news truck parked outside my house in La Jolla, like documenting where I go, when I go. Um, it was like paparazzi, and I didn't have any idea how to deal with it. Like I was So you like, saw none of that in college? No, I mean, none of it. I mean... The closest thing I had to was a, a local beat writer writing a, a negative piece of me firing a football at his head right. during practice one day. That was that Ryan. Was the, Ryan wait, why did, what, what was somebody that? Wrote, somebody wrote a, an article about him, and Ryan saw the beat reporter standing on the sideline and threw an errant pass that almost took the guy's I, head I off. I love that. You know, I mean, Connolly and I's <laughs> sort of mutual friend, allegedly, Nick Cassavetes is a big filmmaker. Supposedly, Roger Ebert was the biggest film critic in the world. <laughs> yeah. And supposedly at the Cannes Film Festival, he pushed him in a bush or, or something. Grabbed or, him by the balls yeah, or something I for mean, giving him a bad review. And I love that, by the way, because I do. I, I, I mean, I think the press is a necessary evil, but they're they're evil. They are. And they like to tear people down. And you're, a, what, a 21-year-old kid at the time from Montana just trying to, you know, trying to make it. So do you think the system had anything to do with success or failure? Or do you really put it all on on you? Or what? what is it? You know, I'd like to blame somebody else probably to initially make me sleep better at night. And uh, bottom line is I just, I handled it poorly. I made poor choices. You know, those were things I couldn't control and it just ate away at me. I cared so much about what other people thought. Uh, it just, um, it, it made things really difficult. When you're playing against the the best defenses in the world every single week, you can't uh, have your central nervous system just on tilt all week long, battling the likes of the media, uh, your teammates, the front office, all of the things that that go into it that you certainly don't need to be a part of. You should just be focusing on playing football and being the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. And when you're not doing it, it's it's going to be short lived. Right. You know, we talk. You know, I was saying before before you came on. Obviously, sports is the backdrop of this podcast, but you know, nobody was talking about mental health in uh, the late nineties. It's, it's kind of a new thing. Talk a little bit. We've had, uh, we really dig into this on the podcast. Um, cause I, I consider it a mental health podcast. I really do. Mm-hmm. And, and I, and I believe that, um, there's value in it for anybody to listen because it just connect, it will connect on, on, well, on, on lots well, of, I, I want to hear your levels. thoughts on that. But the interesting thing about it is now, you know, we had, uh, Ron Artest met a world peace, you know, on the pod, on our podcast. And we know what's happening with Naomi Osaka and, um, uh, Simone, yeah, uh, Simone Biles. I mean, it just yeah. so now it's it's okay to say, you know what, I'm a little fucked up, and you guys are 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 not making it easier. But then it's just get out there, perform, or don't. Nobody gives a shit. So was there anyone there trying to help you in that way at all? No, I mean, growing up in the cowboy culture of Montana, and then in locker rooms and college and the pros, I'd never seen another man, let alone another athlete, stand up and be like. I'm really fucking struggling here. Can somebody help me? Right. It's just never, if you don't have any evidence of it or a pathway, how would you even know to do something like that when you're going through the same thing? And in my final stop in Seattle, I was having a real hard time getting out of bed. I felt lazy. I felt sad all the time. Uh, and instead of walking into my head coach's office and expressing those things to him in that moment, I just quit. I right. thought if I could just disappear. But I can't disappear. My name will never go away because of the expectations that existed, 
and because who I was drafted alongside with. So when I thought that would just all go away, I didn't have any comprehension about what would happen every April when my name would get brought up and the word bust would be associated with it. And I would start to buy in and believe it. And it would take me down a road of trying just to numb away any kind of feeling that I could. And that all stems from the mental health diagnosis that I never, never got growing up and through this thing. You know, um, Mike Holmgren was a coach at Seattle and, and Ryan, correct me if I'm wrong, but you, you believe that had you gone to him, he was the kind of guy that would have looked to help you. I, I do believe so. I mean, who knows at that time, right? Even the names you talked about who have come forward and spoke out. I mean, they've been hammered in the press still, oh, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, so it hasn't necessarily boosted confidence in any future athlete coming forward and, and saying something, but I think it has given them uh, and given them the idea that you can do it and you're going to get support from the people that you need to. And that's so impressive because the understanding that it's okay to not be okay when you're a big, strong athlete, when they pretty much just tell you to shut up and dribble or play and go out and do it, you're getting paid millions of dollars. All money ever is done for those people that have struggled with anything in their lives. It's just, I think, exacerbated any character defects that exist. Money right. can do wonderful things for one another, but it really, it really exposed where my character defects were in my life because the power, the prestige... All of that that comes with it, the fame, I had I had no idea what that meant. Well, I think the, the interesting thing now, I think, because we all know at the end of the day, it's all going to come down to money. It always is. And no matter how much you want people to be empathetic or not, Mike Holmgren, maybe he would have been, maybe he wouldn't have been. But I think now what they're seeing is when you have a talent, you want to make sure you help keep his head right. I know like you didn't have a mental, like I know Russell Wilson has, unfortunately Trevor Moad was a, was a great guy who passed away, but he had a guy who helped him with his emotional state pretty much all the time. And I know a lot of these guys, there's nothing like that back then, right? There's not a single person. Well, there's sports psychologists, but that's different, right? Were they even then? Did you have one then? The chargers asked me to go see one, but I was so defiant that this made me weak or made me less than that. I just, I, I don't remember. I remember just, fighting it tooth and nail to go, but I did it because they were asking me to do it. And to your point, uh, Trevor Moad was extremely instrumental in my growth when I walked out of prison. He and I worked together for the last five years, really. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. And so his his death was is is been very difficult for me because he taught me a completely different way how to view things um differently and more neutral like i just don't get high or low about anything i still have stressors and things like everybody else but i understand as human beings we complicate shit so much and it's really simplistic to the idea of like i can't control a damn thing you say do or think about me ever i i can't so if i can't control it what the hell do i have to worry about it going on in any space. And I just cared so much about what other people thought. So I use affirmations. Trevor had me work through some things in terms of like what other people think of me is none of my business. That's been a real hard one. Um, It's something I utilize every single day. Now I wake up, I look at myself in the mirror, I say it, I believe it. I've trained my mind to believe it. It doesn't matter. And sometimes I just have to remind myself, especially with social media and things like that. When somebody says the bust word or things like that, I have to, why, why do I care what this person thinks? My who, peers don't believe that. Yeah, who probably, by the way, doesn't even think it. It just wants a reaction. And I know Connolly and I, we deal with that, which is like overreacting to nonsense that right. has no purpose. And it's, and it's interesting. I had no idea you knew Trevor. And I met him I met him probably five or six times with Russell. And I do tell a lot of people in the limited time I got from him, he was an amazing guy, that that neutral mindset is so important to remove those highs and lows. And Connolly and I know, like both of us, we we go through that all the time. We come in, like right now, we're working on a new idea. We're like all amped up. And then by tomorrow, we might be fucking miserable. And it's, <laughs> and I do, I think it's more important than maximizing your highs or minimizing your lows is finding that neutral balance. So do you feel now that you've really found a place that you're happy and comfortable with that? Or is it work every day or what? It's work every day. I'm still, you know, being inside my mind is fucked up. It just is. Um, 
some of the things I think about. Like last week, I just I didn't do enough. I felt like in terms of my health, like working out, I was felt like I was kind of lazy and laying around, and I just would look in the mirror at, at night and be like, "You piece of shit, get up and do something." But the the idea of like self care is a different thing that I I didn't realize. Like maybe last week I needed to just take a little break a little bit, maybe lay around and watch some squid uh, games. I've been watching, De- I've been watching Dexter for some reason. <laughs> How so, is it? That was the new one. The I haven't watched the reboot. I've oh, started from the, the beginning old, of the old right. one. Yeah. Um, Squid Games. I don't know how much that helps the mental health, but you know, <laughs> but it is weird. Like Adele, I don't know who saw the Adele concert last night, which Oprah's interviewing her, and she's talking in between every song about mental health and about which it's funny. What do you mean? You, was she bad? Is Adele? Yeah, battling? she yeah. got divorced and right. was battling that. And her really, whole albums have been written about this type of stuff. Go right. listen to her lyrics of her songs, right? Yeah, <laughs> and I and I. But what she said, which was interesting, which you as as an athlete, maybe you can talk about this. But she said she didn't lose weight because people body shamed her and call her fat, or because she didn't feel good about herself. She lost weight because she found something that really helped her life, which was working out. Like it really gave her a endorphins, endorphins, yeah, all, all of it. And and you know, since you said like last week you're in bed, we went to Hawaii six weeks ago. I got a trainer for 40 straight days before that Hawaii trip. And I haven't worked out since I got back. And I wake up and and when you say, oh, I feel like a bitch, Connelly knows this because they did it with Leo in, um, in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And I wrote it for Dylan in the show, which was me. Dylan is trying to prepare himself for a scene. And he looks at himself in the mirror, which I've done a thousand Self-loathing times. Self-loathing in the yeah, mirror. Yeah, it's like, fucking get it together, you fucking <laughs> bitch. What are you doing? And... I think a lot of that stuff people just saw as comedy, but the truth is it really is a real struggle. And to to wake up and make yourself feel like you're not talk to yourself like you're a fucking loser and not talk to yourself in a way that you would never talk to anyone you cared about is an important thing that actually does make a difference. Yeah, negative self-talk is so influential in how you deal with things and interpret things. Because um, that any kind of slight from somebody where is so nonchalant could trigger you in, in, in any moment. And and I've had that, right? I, you know, growing up where I grew up, I grew up, and being criticized by the media forever uh, in my life, pretty much telling me that I was bad, makes me go to that place. Like I, I'm more used to hearing somebody go. Uh, when people give me compliments now, my head kind of still goes to the ground. It's, I'm uncomfortable with it. But if somebody's like, "That Ryan Lee, that that asshole man," I'm like, "Yeah, that's that's about right. right. That, that sounds about right for me." So yeah, it's a struggle all the time. I do know this. I do know that I'm at I I live in a unchaotic and peaceful life now. I don't like the word happy because life still exists. Life is life. It's not fair. It's how you deal with it that matters. And so those are the steps that I've made and I I do have what I would consider the life of my dreams now with my family, my career, everything that I get to do and and be of service to others and doing this podcast with Kevin has allowed me to take that platform to in a different direction. I think this is going to reach people that would have never heard my story before and who may be going through some of the similar things that I've went through or are currently going through and can find and know and understand that there's a solution for them. Um, and there's a solution for everybody out there, regardless of whether you were a starting NFL quarterback or just like everybody else. Another thing, obviously, Ryan touches on in a great, great detail is, um, which is a, a crisis, uh, an epidemic in uh, in this country and in the world is the opioid crisis. Now, yeah. Ryan will talk about he had had lots of opioids for surgeries, okay? So it's for acute pain. You have an injury, you take these things. But the minute you take them socially, it has a different effect, it, right? It's got nowhere to go, right? So if you have a bad knee, that goes, that, that goes to the, the knee and it makes your knee feel better. When you start taking it socially with cocktails, is where the game changes, right? And I think that's important. It's an important thing to know. Well, for me, I, I just, I had walked away from the NFL. I, I tell people all the time, I'd love to blame my drug use on the fact that I was a shitty quarterback, but I, I can't. I didn't start abusing the drug until after I got done playing and I was in Vegas for a fight. Uh, and We know this all too well. You know, when they give you the free tickets at the HBO fights, then they have to announce that you're there. Yeah. And I know Ryan tells a story I related to it because it is. It's a little uncomfortable when it's like, and Denzel Washington, <laughs> Kevin Connolly. And it's like, uh, you literally want to crawl under this. Yeah. So I related to this story, but Ryan, I'll let you take it from there. So yeah, we're at a fight. Uh, and the exact same thing. I got these ringside seats and 
Therefore, the MC announces the celebrities in the audience, and it's you know Tiger Woods and <laughs> Charles Barkley and Dr. Dre, and then Ryan Leaf. And I was just like the whole time, please don't say my name, please don't say my name, please don't say my name. And they did, and the whole MGM Grand just booed Ugh. and hissed. And it's not like that hasn't happened before, right? You play professional football, you walk into an opposing team stadium, you get booed, but you have a chance to to shove it in their face, yeah. and you're wearing this armor of helmet and shoulder pads. In that moment, my attic brain heard, not only are you a shitty football player, but you are a horrible human being. That's how I interpreted it, and it just it shrunk me to, to shreds. And that night, an acquaintance of mine offered me some Vicodin with the, with the alcohol I was drinking, and I was going to be at parties where there were Hall of Famers and Super Bowl champions where I felt less than and judged all the time when I walked in those rooms. And I took it. It would be the first time I abused it, took it for emotional pain, and it did exactly that. It, it took it all away. I didn't feel anything. And I think I had been searching for that feeling for so long, not feeling anything. Didn't make me feel better. I just didn't feel the pain, the depression, uh, the shame, all of that. And I went in and out of those parties and then felt none of that judgment or fear or anything. And that would end up me chasing that for the next eight years of my life to the ultimate end of ending up in a prison cell. You know, the, the other thing too I wanted to talk about is, you know, Ryan, when you think about think about, you know, all that's all that's kind of happened and you come back and now you're an analyst, right? And you see these young quarterbacks or you see guys and we, we reference it in the podcast and you, is it hard for you to criticize another quarterback when in reality you're thinking like, oh man, I, I, I just wish I could tell this guy because I can speak from experience. How hard is it to criticize uh, whether a college quarterback or an NFL quarterback? We all know as a Dolphins fan, you're not a Tua guy. <laughs> which you were right about as it turns out, but how hard is it as an analyst now with, a, with looking through clear eyes, is it to, to criticize other players? Well, I, I'm never critical of the person, I think. I, I'm, uh, I'm critical of the play or how they went about making the play and the decision-making in that process. I think that's the difference. I, I felt like there were personal attacks. Like Terry Bradshaw, who was my hero growing up, when I was struggling so, so immensely in the NFL... I remember one day on Fox NFL Sunday or whoever he was working with at the time, he brought up my parents in it. Like he said, who, who, who could have raised this kid? Yeah, it's a cheap shot, especially for a guy who's had major, major issues. depression issues. I mean, I mean are you kidding. Well, and so I, I, and I just, I, I took that to heart a lot. And your parents are good people. Yeah. They're, they're incredible people. Right. They raised three boys. My dad's a two tour Vietnam veteran. You know, my mom was a registered nurse and delivered babies her whole life in, in our hometown. And they also raised the first Montana to pretty much do any of these things we're talking about. How do you know how to raise a kid like that? Right. First time you're raising a kid, uh, all of a sudden he's known by everybody. The town really doesn't like the way he goes about his business because he uh, looks up to Jalen Rose and Kobe Bryant, right? He doesn't look up to John Stockton, who would have been a great guy to look up to, but that wasn't who I, I want to emulate. I want to emulate the guys that could fly around the basketball court and wore their socks up to their knees and their shorts down to their ankles type of thing. That's, that's, and that's okay. Yeah. But they didn't know how to raise a boy like that. So they did whatever they could, the best they could through this process. And so when I go about my analyst job now, it's about being critical of the play, not the player. I also, certainly not their parents. I mean, that's absurd. Certainly not their parents. And what I like to do, and ultimately when I'm calling games, I go back to when I was sitting on the couch or sitting at the counter with my father talking sports, period. My dad would always kind of set up the play and kind of talk about what's going on. And then I would say what just happened. And so when I call games and I'm in the booth with my play-by-play -play partner, that's exactly how I go about doing it. I tell people all the time, I picture myself watching a game with my father. And that's how we converse. And that's how I converse with my play-by-play -play guy. And that's why I think I've been able to excel in in move up so quickly in the last four years by doing that. And, and right, so Ryan, going, just going back, did you deal with any anxiety, depression stuff when you were young before, when things were, you were the top guy in Montana and all, were you dealing with any of that? I didn't understand it. I under, I understand now that I was probably going undiagnosed with some sort of depression. I also had a, a terrible case of narcissistic personality disorder. Like I just, I thought everything was about me. I thought I was incredibly important, but I think that stems from the fact that, you know, I was shamed and therefore my counter to that was to, 
I'm gonna fucking show you. I am I am the all knowing, the all um, consuming God of Great Falls, Montana, and you better recognize what that looks like. And so that's how I won. Like if people treated me poorly, um, you, you know they they pulled practical jokes on me, made me feel less than, and all that. My answer would be to embarrass them some way, shape, or form, or get to the highest possible level that no one ever anticipated me to do uh, to, to shove it in their face. And was there anything good in the NFL? Did you have any fun? Was there any good moments in that? It's, 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 it's rare. And for whatever reason, I don't remember them. I can tell you every moment from college, every statistic from college. It's really a, a testament to what your brain goes through when you're dealing with traumatic things. When you go from one of the most loved and beloved people in San Diego to two weeks later, one of the most vilified and hated, that's traumatic. And I didn't understand that. And when I was finally diagnosed with PTSD, I said, that can't be true. I've never been in a war. I've never, you know, I, and I don't like to use it still because I feel like it's an excuse, but it makes sense. It makes sense. Whatever, trauma you've dealt with your entire life can be considered what that is. And I think we, we pigeonhole it too many times around what it actually is. So when I was finally diagnosed, it made sense because that stemmed way back. I was vilified and hated by my community. You know, you're supposed to be the popular athlete because you're the starting quarterback and the big man on campus in terms of what you do on the basketball court and the baseball diamond. But I was just so, so uh, far and away and head and shoulders different than everybody else in how I competed. Uh, it's the only reason I got out of that state and got to where I got to. So when you were vilified and shamed, when they told you you were a bad person rather than you just you're doing a bad thing or you misbehaved, that that was the trauma that existed a long time for me. Especially when you're just a kid from a bunch of adults in a home in your hometown. You know they did a they did a poll. We talk about this in the Ryan talks about this in the podcast. They did a poll in Montana in his hometown when he was the Heisman finalist. And he finished third in his hometown in, in, in the voting poll. And it's so. What were you doing as a kid? <laughs> what like what were you doing in that town? Were you? He just... was just dunking and being loud, right? I mean, like you were doing things that you weren't supposed to be doing, and in a white privileged community. Let's call it what it was. Yeah, I was incredibly uh, um, competitive, and I had to compete at anything and everything, and I had to win at all costs. And I didn't quite understand that when you walked off the court, it, it was supposed to be different. You know, people were, uh, you could be different. People treated you the same way that you treated them on the basketball court or on the football field. And I, a lot of people thought I, it was all about me. And, uh, and, and for the, some of the things I did, like when I dunked one, one time I turned into a jet airliner cause I saw Kobe Bryant do it. And I just went down the court like that <laughs> while you're up 107 to 32. <laughs> right. And, and, my coach pulled, no, we, you know, it was, it was in the routine of the game and coach, coach just, in fact, I knew it was coming. So I just kind of veered like the plane <laughs> right, to the bench, right to the bench, <laughs> right to the bench. Cause I knew he was going to bench me because I knew the crowd. I mean, crowds came to boo me. Um, my hometown crowd, you know, liked it. My mom was always so fearful. I remember one time I was playing as a junior and I was, we were down by a bunch. And so I just started gunning. I started throwing up three pointers from, from everywhere. And like after the, I've made like two or three in the row and then I pulled up to hit for a fourth opportunity. And my mom told me the story. She was in the crowd there and she was like, Oh no, Ryan, please. Like she doesn't, didn't want people looking at me or talking about. And one of the other, just parents, do a regular dunk, Ryan. Why do you have to do one handed hook dunk and hang over the guy as he's laying on his back? And one of the parents looks at my mom and says, no, he's the only person doing anything. <laughs> so she just, she couldn't you know, resolve what that looked like. She was always trying to protect me. And I think that's kind of where I developed the the lying skill. Or I don't know if I was ever a good liar. I just lied a lot because I just tried to cover up what I thought people thought was shameful or ugly. When in reality, it's just human. You know, we're all flawed human beings trying to be better every single day. And I just never associated that. I thought I was better than everybody because of uh, of this, uh, of uh, because I could play this silly sport, right? And how how do you impart this stuff that you've learned to your children? I mean, is there if you see any of it in them, anxiety, depression, whatever? I mean, how how do you help them with this? Well, when you have a four year old, there, there isn't really yeah. too much time other than them just going full blast. But I will say this: uh, my story is going to be able to help me a ton in being a parent, um, because there's going to be a point 
that he's at school because kids can be ruthless where they're making fun of his dad. So for- Ryan's son is named MacGyver. He's four. And they, they did that test. He's going to be, what is he looking like? He's going to be like six, nine or something. It's going to be a beast. Ryan wants him to be a lefty. He's tying his <laughs> right hand behind his back and making him throw. He wants him. Get him into golf. Get, golf. Yeah, no, yeah. I already have him. I've had him out on the course a ton. Um, it's the greatest thing I've ever done is, is being dad. So I, I, you know, I don't want to make similar mistakes and I don't think I will. I know I'm going to mess up. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I screw up all the time. I just am more self-aware around those things. But as a father, it would break my heart to see him have to struggle with the same things I did, though I know it's a possibility genetically, um, situationally in, in the world we grow up in now. But I hope and pray that because of people who have the platforms, such as myself, who continue to talk about it, that when he is old enough to understand it, it won't be a hidden secret. You know, when somebody goes to rehab, it's always kind of shamed talking, you know, whispers like, oh my gosh. Oh my gosh, Susie is in rehab. I want the answer to that be, oh my God, Susie's in rehab. Like, how great is that? Where would you go spend 30 days on yourself ever for self-improvement? You just don't do it. When I go and speak around the country, I talk to the people in the audience and I say, it should be a prerequisite. If you're not going to college, then once you graduate from high school, you go to 30 days of rehab. When you get out of college, you go to 30. I mean, I don't care if you have an issue or a problem. Just Just go better yourself with some life skills that you probably didn't get or got deficient in while you're in college or in high school because of what it looks like. So podcast, it, you know, it's 10 episodes and it literally starts from like day one of him starting to become an athlete and it, and it goes all the way to the end and it's, it's unapologetically apologetic and it's, and it's deep, but now Ryan goes and he speaks uh, at all these universities and I've, I've seen these clips. What's the response? I mean, what you're, what you're talking about is somebody that's heard the story top to bottom. What, what, what is the response when you're, and I'm obviously, you know, not an athlete or any of that, but when you're talking to these college kids, they, are they hearing you when you're at old miss? Are they hearing you? Are they, are they, are they getting it? Or I, I thought, I thought at the beginning that they weren't because it's just so damn quiet. You could hear a pin drop in there. And sometimes I didn't realize that in this, this generation, like when they're quiet, when they're not fidgeting, when their phone isn't in their hand, they're connected, right? They're hearing it. And then I'll exchange number. I, I give my phone number out to everybody on the team when I leave the room that night. And the text messages I get from guys who are struggling with something or simply just want to tell me a bit of good news uh, or tell them they're going through something that they just don't feel comfortable maybe telling a coach or something like that. It's it's impacted my life greatly. Because I don't think I've ever... I, I was never of service to anybody my whole life, ever. And so this this changes it for me. And I get this great opportunity and this platform to do this with a bunch of great head coaches around this country that are going to have a massive impact on young men's lives. Yeah. I mean, and it just in, in the podcast, there's, you know, it's, there's, there's some obviously very serious things that are discussed, but you know, in there, there's like some kind of humorous kind of anecdotes and, you know, Ryan, uh, when he, when he was away in, in jail, he had a, he had a longest yard moment. They Tell came us. out and they asked him to. Tell us. <laughs> So uh, April 10th, I don't know which year it was. I think it was 2013. Um, uh, a fellow inmate walked up to me and, and asked if I would go outside with them. They were playing football and asked if I would be uh, all-time quarterback. <laughs> and I can't tell you why I did it, guys. I can't. I, I, I went. And then I stood out there and I looked through the razor wire and the chain link fences of my home, the Rocky Mountains where I grew up, uh, absolutely humiliated and embarrassed. But I did it. I threw it around, and all of a sudden I heard the walkie-talkies squeaking from the, the guards. guards like, everybody's gathered around. Like, Lee's fucking throwing the ball out here, and everybody's showing up. And, and I felt so embarrassed and so humiliated. And I promised myself as I walked back to my cell that night that I'm, ne- I'm not going outside again. I'm not putting myself in that position to be embarrassed and humiliated like I did. It was it was still all about me. The man that asked me to go out walked up to me later that night, and he walked into the room and just said, "Hey, man, I, I just want to tell you thanks for for coming out there today. Today was my birthday, and it was the best birthday present I could ever got. I got to play catch with an NFL quarterback. It's pretty cool. 
I still didn't hear that in that moment, right? I was still like, fuck you, get out of here. <laughs> I'm, you don't, I'm a big fucking deal, all right? So I shouldn't be in this place. I didn't fully understand what he was saying. Like, just by showing up sometimes, uh, being empathetic, that's the serviceable work that we talk about. I think a lot of people get that confused in terms of what you can do, you know, donate money or or clothing or things like that. But like the real service work we do with our fellow human beings is, is to listen, hear what they're saying, and relate to it in some way, shape, or form to make them not feel alone. Right. So when I when Ryan and I started talking about the podcast, I said to Ryan, I was like, man, this is great. You know, we could we're gonna make we could make a bunch of money here. And Ryan says, we could, you know, we could help people. I was like, yeah, well, that's what I meant. I meant we could spiritual money. We could uh, help people. But, you know, this guy really is all about getting the message out there. And we're going to get you there too as well, Kevin. <laughs> I, I want to know, Ryan, so how you walk out of this jail and I don't even know how you guys connected, but how do you resurrect this? You know, we, we just, Jordan Belfort's a friend of mine who we just had on uh, our, our other podcast, Hollywood Ways That We Do. But, <laughs> but, you come out of jail, it's all gone. I can't imagine the NFL or football is welcoming to you at all. How do you resurrect this? Where, where's the first step and what do you do? I mean, if I, if I went back and, and think about what it was like walking out of that, that prison, December 3rd, 2014, like I had nothing. My credit score was 500. The Disney Corporation wasn't waiting to offer me a job. Um, you know, I had no job. Um, opportunities. I I had no money. I had blown every dollar I had. The only thing I had going for me was hope that I had built by some of the things I did while I was in prison to help other people. And the fact that my mom and dad had a, had a downstairs that I could crash. A lot of guys that when they leave prison, they don't have anywhere to go. So they go back to the streets or they go back to the wrong crowd and are exactly back in the same spot. So there's a lot of gratefulness for me with that aspect of things, but there was nothing ahead of me. I had no idea. And if I would have thought about the insurmountable things that existed for me over the next five years, I would have probably packed it in and called it quits at that point. Cause I'm like, this is going to be too hard. So did someone reach out to you or how do you even make inroads at all? I just, I just got up every morning and went about a plan of, of recovery. And at first it started with walks, kind of meditative walks around uh, the, the river, the Missouri river there in my, my hometown um, going and doing some service work in terms of going to the mission and serving food. And I went to my storage locker that I had kept for years with all my Nike endorsement product, right? I mean, Jordans and just everything you can imagine. And I remember taking it all out. Like I just saved onto that stuff because I thought it made me important. If I had the swag, I still looked like I was rich and famous and all these things. And I took all those boxes down to the mission and I just started handing out shoes and clothes and I remember telling my family, I was like, this is like, like if anybody shows up, the homeless population in Great Falls, Montana in 2014 is going to be most swagged out <laughs> looking crew that there was. And, that, and they were. And, and I started doing it. Buddies that I was in prison with, when they got out, I'd show up at the bus stop when they pulled up there with a, a duffel bag full of, of clothes and some money to get them on their feet because I just knew how difficult it was for those and how like privileged I was to have a family that still supported me through everything that I'd done to them and uh, the possibility of an opportunity. And I wasn't getting that from my parole officer. He wouldn't let me go to treatment. And I knew that's where I needed to go. I didn't get better. What do you mean he wouldn't let you go? People don't come out of prison after being in an institution and want to go to another institution. Right. So I was setting a precedent and it wasn't like I was asking to go to Bermuda or something or, you know, right. I, I wanted to go to a very intensive 90-day treatment program that would help me deal with my my physical and my mental health. And it took him 90 days to finally acquiesce and let me go. And during those 90 days, if I didn't start making those little incremental steps by doing those things, you know, I would immediately, my muscle memory takes over and I just want to numb it away. So I don't know necessarily how I got through those 90 days other than the doing the work that I did. I got down to Southern California is where I went to treatment. Um because of the recovery community here, which is outstanding, I made relationships. So when I asked for my parole to be switched or transferred to the state of California, where it normally doesn't, um, I had some some influential people that that worked in the government and who really gave me a couple of reference letters that 
I think swayed the the parole board and my parole was transferred to California. And I started working for a sober living community uh, called Transcend Recovery here in Los Angeles and doing a bunch of different things um, around that. And then it just continued to blossom because of the relationships I met, uh, I made. And that's how I met Kevin. Now, Bust, the first episode is available. And, you know, obviously I'm, sounds like I'm, but honestly, it's, it's not, it's not even a sports podcast. It's a, it's a story. It's a top to bottom story. And it's, it's hardcore and it's not for the faint of heart, but if you have any kind of anxiety or feel any of those issues. It's it's, a great story of overcoming. Right obstacles and and it's amazing to see that things are going well now and uh hopefully you can help this guy's a two handicap this guy's a two handicap he's a fucking athlete what do you want he hits the ball we could play all day we're not gonna be a two (laughs) yeah the rest of our life we're not gonna throw the ball like him but uh i'm glad it's going well the podcast sounds great and then you know your analyst career sounds like everything is going great too so it's awesome and uh and i'm glad that the world is in a place where, you know, and I've talked about it on this podcast before. There were times we were doing entourage. I was making millions of dollars and I was, I'd be sitting alone in a room and, and I'd speak to Connolly and I'd be like, I, I don't want to do this. Not one more second. I, I want to ingest as much money as I can as quickly as I can, but I want to get out of here. I'm like, I'm at this party at the Soho house. Can I hit you in a half hour? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We'll have a shot for you, buddy. Keep going. But you know, it's, it, there wasn't anyone to say, this is killing me. And and again, just so everyone's listening out there, you don't have to start abusing me. I get it. It wasn't fucking, uh, wasn't Shakespeare. I understand. But the point is, is when you're doing something and the added burden of your own brain is, is just making it even more difficult. It's, it's a shame when there are people that you could talk to now and reach out to that can help you make that situation better. And by the way, for everybody, like I say, for the, for the chargers, it would have been better for them if they would have had someone that could help you out, you know? So it always confused me that they were willing to spend that much money. And like, what would it have cost to have like a PR person just like literally to at my hip for the first year of my career? Right. You know, what, what would that have cost? $50,000 or something like that? Who knows? Right. I mean, do you think uh, they've changed? Has that changed at all? I think so. I think if you remember correctly when des bryant was in, in dallas they had somebody with him you know 24 7 like when he was out just so he make sure he didn't like snap at a photographer just or anything reporter. yeah there's yeah. just a there's just a uh, you can find yourself in compromising positions all the time doesn't matter what it looks like and so when you have that type of responsibility and you're seen when you when you were when i was drafted i was seen as the savior of that franchise how could that be possible for a 21 year old who had the maturity level of a 13 year old really and now you hit 31 million dollars that shit's just going to explode and if you are getting any sort of criticism at all it's like a big like fuck you i'm rich i'm famous you are a little bitch <laughs> and that's the way it is and that's the way it is and i think our culture's kind of gone to a place where i don't know where i learned that Success was money, power, and prestige, but that's what I thought it was, yeah. and it's it's clearly and the truth not. Is success is is health and happiness. That's what it is. I mean, no matter what you have or what you don't, it doesn't matter. And a lot of people would always bothers me when I see it. They're like, "Oh, this guy's rich. Who cares if he's fucking depressed?" Like it's just right. Like how could he be depressed yeah, with all that money? But, it's really unfair to say. But it, really it is. is a mental thing, and especially with athletes too, which we talk a lot of people. I play with a lot of. Uh, it's okay. I play my my sports with a lot of you're, high. You're you're uh, pickleball. pickleball guy, like I'm a, I'm high a, end pickleball. Doug guy. is yeah. a high I, end pickleball. I, I am, guy. But, it pains me to say, but but, but what I say can't is imagine I, that affects your mental health. No, ever, but what I'm saying is I play with <laughs> I play with guys who are athletes that I could never even dream of being, and I always say to them, which half of it is joking, half of it is serious. I go. Your fucking body and my brain and I would be ruling the world in athletics. And what I I mean by that is Michael Jordan had both. He had the ability to think like an athlete and make it through all of those obstacles. And he had the physical abilities to do that. So I think a lot of people still can't wrap their head around the fact that the mind is more complex than the body. And when you see guys like, you know, I mean, remember when Brian Williams, who, who was killed by his brother, when he left the NBA, I remember going, if I could play professional basketball, I would do it all day and all night. But there's a lot of people who, if they could write screenplays and make money, would do it all day and all night. It wasn't something that I could find a lot of joy in most of the time. So I think, you know, it just is, it is managing 
to find the balance in it. And you Do you know, know who Sam Query is? <laughs> yeah. Tennis, tennis player. player. Right. So it's funny because it, his story came out on Untold. No, no, no. You're, you're Marty Fish. Marty oh, Fish. Marty Fish. Yeah. Marty Fish. Yeah. But did you play pickleball with Sam? Yeah, Gray? Sam's, Sam's my friend. But Marty, okay, Marty has Fish. an untold story about mental illness. He doesn't like me from pickleball. But 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 <laughs> let me, let's tell Ryan the story. So, you know, this guy, you know, Marty Fish is a... 6'11", right? <laughs> Mar- Sam is like 6'8". Marty's Marty's probably 6'4". He's a lot but, of, he, okay. but he's, okay. uh, you know, was a top-ranked tennis Isner. player. Isner's the tall dude. Isner's yeah. like six nine, yeah. six ten. He's a, a top ranked tennis player. Right. And Doug told him to get to the net, that he had to go to the net, which uh, what little I know about pickleball is true. And he said to Doug, "I'm not going to have an aging screenwriter tell me anything about a racket sport." <laughs> which was a good a good line, by the way. That's a good line. But but remember, we were kind of like aging oh, screenwriter, huh? <laughs> we're like this guy. I'm like, this, well, that's kind of an asshole thing to say. And then Untold comes out, and yeah. you go, "All right, here's a guy." Point is that you never know what people are going but through. But un- untold, you should watch this doc. But it's a great doc. But but Marty, nobody nobody gets better at tennis at 29 years old. Marty did, and all of a right. sudden he's top 10 in the world. He's playing Federer in the quarterfinals of the U.S. Open. If he wins that tournament, he makes 100 million bucks, and he's a legend for the rest of his life. He had an anxiety attack. He could not take the court. And it's it's a really fascinating documentary. He grew up with Andy Roddick and and was in the but shadow it puts of that. It into but perspective yeah. as well. And, and honestly, I'm and it's like I say, I don't like to to hit Marty Fish. I like Marty Fish a lot, and he cannot like me all he wants or whatever. It doesn't matter. But should he have gone to the net? Yeah, yeah. You have to go to the net. No, no matter how good you are at doubles pickleball, if you don't go to the net, you're not going to win. And doesn't like, matter. You and, get beat by old, like eighty year old men who play at the net. Yeah. And look, I said to Marty, I go, look, if you if you focus on this sport for three weeks, I I get it. You'll be better than me. But at the current Today, moment, you're I'm not. Better than you. <laughs> so now get but, your ass to the net. <laughs> but anyway, I love him, and I think though what's important is even two years ago when I have my own mental health shit that I deal with. I wasn't thinking that maybe this guy's got some shit going on. I was just like, what a, what an what asshole. A you know? What a, thing what to an say. asshole. Yeah. But the truth is we all need to look at what other now, people are Now, what if Marty Fish would have said, listen, bro, you may want to take a look at that first act. <laughs> that cold opening is a little weak. You would say, dude, what are you talking listen, about? Listen, I am the type of you're guy. A, you're, a, you're a tennis player. No, I did stand-up comedy. I am the type of guy. I listen to everyone's criticisms. I take it in. Some I, some I dismiss after I think about it, but I've never ignored, you know, I've never ignored people who come up. Now, if you just go, you suck, <laughs> that's you know, a like story. that's a different issue. But anyway, Ryan, this was great. And uh, everybody hit, just click over, click check out busted really is an excellent story i think hopefully conley will get a movie out of this because that's buckle really, in buckle you know, in that's actually a good park one. media is about building bust is IPs. available <laughs> right now season two coming soon the question is one of the things that ryan and i talked about and we'll see if we did it successfully with the podcast is sort of turning that kind of the bust uh title on its head right because well like what we talked about if he's a bust then what are we right, right. so right. really that word is just is just a word yeah. you know um, but there are other people out there and, uh, you know, we'll see if we could, uh, you know, if people connect to this and understand that it's about the journey. Yeah. Um, and I think the journey for Ryan and, and we, you know, we kind of wrapped up and we're still going, but that's fine. But the journey for right, like all of that football is leading to this stuff now. So while it didn't lead to success in the NFL, there are things that you can take from that, that go the, all those time and all that work that you put into it is paying off and is going to give you hopefully a really great second and third act, which, you know, Conley and I talk about all the time of what's our second and third act, which I got a script I'm working on for Conley, by the way, it's going to bring this fucking little man back. Like you can't (laughs) believe, but, uh, but anyway, this was really great. And, and really click over, check out. I think you just write a buddy, like a a twins version with me and Conley. You know, Ryan (laughs) and I, Ryan Ryan and I play golf together. And one, one morning we, Oh, before the tournament that we got thrown out of, um, we, (laughs) Ryan's I'm a 17, Ryan's a two. So they made me play. To ten, so right. we would have well, would have made a deep run, but we we lost because I was playing at a low. But hand you game. know what Connolly does? Say. But Ryan and I took a picture together, and basically Ryan is looking at the picture later, and he's like, "I don't know, I didn't realize that I was that much taller than you." I was like, "Yeah," I was like, yeah. "Well, the good news is I've, I've I've come off tall." Yeah, I mean, Ryan look, thought we were the look, I was a couple inches short. Ryan, you do come off tall. Kevin <laughs> does come off small, but. The bigger thing is, which I do wish there's a football here. You know, he likes to talk about his cannon arm. It's, do you know that? Have you seen it? He hasn't seen it. But I well, listen. The I would like to see what I'm Ryan thinks. I'm not going to talk about. Talk, I'm not going to brag about my quarterback arm to Ryan. I just want to hear what he thinks. The entourage football team. 
I was the starting quarterback. I mean, there and were, I they, there was no backup. There was not. There was there was like a clear cut decision. I didn't even have to try out. I was the guy. Period. I just want to know what he thinks of your arm. Hey, Dylan. I have a question. Doug Flutie. Since, since I have you guys here, and you're the you're the creator and writer, stuff like that. Like like when 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 Vince is going through his drug uh, situation, was it was it ironic that when he goes to the hotel, M and M's there that he, that he gets into the, yeah. the tussle with, you know, because yeah. M went through everything he's yeah, gone yeah. through. Yeah, that was. I mean, that was definitely part of the plan. But also, when when Kevin talks, some people did not like that season. They did not like that. But he says, "Did I listen to some jerk off who would give a criticism?" I was reading all the criticism that Entourage was just like, "Oh, it always works out. Everything's great. This and that." And that's really where that season came out of. Now, again, I'm proud of it. I thought it was good, and I thought it was a really realistic look at at what goes on in this town. Yeah, and, it was. and we know uh, Charlie Sheen came on the podcast and said, "Oh my God, I, I was watching that like my life. Don't make these mistakes, Vince." But um, I think we all, at the end of the day, we all want respect. We all want to feel like we're we're doing something that has some relevancy to, to whatever but the like world you is. Said, like you said, you can't make everybody happy. So no. after season six, it was like the big criticism of the show was, wow, of course, everything always works out for these guys. So Doug finally said, all right, let's put him through a rough stretch. And then when we started that season, everybody was like, my life is hard. <laughs> I remember Chuck Liddell stopped me. He's like, listen, dude, my life is hard enough, okay? Yeah. On Sundays, all I want is a little bit of happiness. Now I got to see a guy yeah. who's got the same, going through the same stuff. So you're never going to make everybody But happy, the right? truth is the smart, the really smart people and like a Trevor, you don't take any of that in. You take in what helps you and you remove what doesn't. And even the people who say they hated that entourage season, our ratings were higher that year. I liked it. I liked well, it. because they got emotionally engaged, just like when Dom came on. And people, well, it's because like, you got It's because you have you had one of the most famous porn stars on there. That's what made it. Yeah. That's that, what made it that, such that, a huge yeah. year. Sasha right? was great. We, we need Sasha on the podcast. We, we're reaching out to her, but she's not calling us back. I don't know why. But so, all right. Anyway, check out Bust, and uh, we'll be back with uh, Victory the podcast next week. Although. What am I talking about? We're live in Long Island Saturday night. There's still like three tickets available. There's a, there's a couple tickets available, Doug. There's a couple Buy them. I think the what I'm going to do, I'm going to, I'm, I'm calling the TCU game. I think I'm going to fly and just fly to New York and, and, and hit the live show. Special that guest yeah. star, Ryan. That Lee. would be amazing oh. if you did, Ryan. Is Ryan. that real? I send send me a private jet and I'll do it. <laughs> yeah, I wish yeah. we could afford it. Exactly. Send in stock tip Dave on, on uh, what, what airline are you on, Dave? What's, what's that? Uh, it's on Federal airline. Express <laughs> and fucking box. But Dave's you're gonna, taking a Greyhound bus. You're going to see Ryan how these Action Park media checks come in the private jet is not quite <laughs> happening we'll get there we'll get-